That's better. All right. Uh, if you could make your, make your way to your seats. Lovely. All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Obed, and I'm one of the leaders here. And as always, if you are new, thank you for dedicating this part of your Sunday to gathering with us. We are confident that your time here with us um, will shape your life in so many ways. Um, what else do I have to announce? I can't remember. All right, grab your Bibles. We're in the book of Hebrews. We're in the book of Hebrews, and we've been in a study in the book of Hebrews for... Um, the last 15 weeks or so, and it's been a joy. It truly has. Um, I am still on a high, 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 um, because of last night, um, and I'll tell you more about it later. So you have something to look forward to, other than God's Word. All right, Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and we are going to be um, this week looking at verses 19 to 25, verses 19 to 25. Originally, we were going to do the rest of the chapter, but there's just so much in here. Um, we just decided to really just um, devy up into these sections. And so what we like to do as a church is to um, remind ourselves of how sufficient um, God's Word is and how it's authoritative for us. And so one of the ways we do that is we want to honor God's Word. And so we do that by standing as we read God's Word. So would you please stand with me? Thank you. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 reads, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our, of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. God, it's mind-blowing to think that you are here in our midst. God, it's also... Um, fascinating to know um, that you're not just um, existing in our midst, but you are actively working in all of our minds, in all of our lives. You've been working, and during this time, you desire to magnify who you are in all of our lives. And so, God, I pray that you would do that this morning. 
um, the issues not with you because you desire for each and every one of us to encounter you um, in a way that defines and shapes us, God. I, I pray you, you want that the issue is often with us. And so, God, I pray that you would prepare all of our hearts and by the power of your spirit, you would cause each and every one of us to surrender to all that you want to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. As I said, we've been in the book of Hebrews for 15 weeks. Um, Last three weeks, what we've done is we've kind of traveled back in time um, to the ancient world, specifically to the time when God miraculously um, rescued his people, the people of Israel from Egypt. Um, after this incredible rescue, God gave them laws um, that helped them to know how they should live and how they should re- relate, not only to each other, um, but to God himself. And one of the most important laws um, had to do with how they would, in a way, um, um, atone for their sins, like make up for their sins. And how they were to do that was through animal sacrifices. So animal sacrifice, um, back then in the ancient Near East, was a common practice. Um, But it had a totally different meaning, um, depending on who you were. And so for the people of Israel... Um, uh, when they sacrificed animals, they were not anxiously trying to appease an angry and volatile God, but they were expressing obedience to a God of justice, not just a God of justice, but a God of grace as well. Um, a, a lot of us, I think, um, a lot of us like to think that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. We view the God of the Old Testament as being a God who is all about judgment and justice and harsh and angry. And then we view the God of the New Testament as being lovely and gracious and merciful. But that's not the case. That's not true. If you read your Bible well and you study it carefully in order to understand God, you will understand that he's the same God that is in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. There's no differences there. And so when the Israelites sacrificed animals, they were doing it in order to obey a God of justice and grace. And so for the Israelites, sacrificing an animal was a vivid symbol um, of the devastating consequences of sin, but ultimately it was an expression of God's justice and grace. And the place where animals were sacrificed was the tabernacle. And so we've been looking at the tabernacle, but let me just give you a brief overview and summary of it. The tabernacle was a tent. Um, It was a mobile worship center, and it was constructed during the um, desert wanderings under the leadership of Moses. The Hebrew term we translate as tabernacle refers to the idea of dwelling. And so in view of this, the tabernacle was really the physical structure identified 
identified with God's presence. This means that at that time, at that time, in all of the world, the tabernacle was the place in which God's presence dwelt. It was where God's people could meet with God, the living God himself. It was the home of the God of the universe, and it was the place where God met with his people. There were two main rooms in the tabernacle, the holy place, and what, what was the other room? The most holy place. You guys have this. Thank you for your help. And these two rooms were separated by a curtain. The first room, known as the holy place, and the, most holy, and the second, the most holy place, was God's throne room and the place of his presence. And the interesting thing about that room is only the high priest, only the high priest, after a thorough process of cleansing, was allowed to enter the most holy place. And he could only enter the most holy place once a year. Once a year. For everyone else, even other ordained priests, the most holy place was off limits. The tabernacle was later replaced by the temple in Jerusalem, um, but this new place of worship didn't make much difference in how um, people related to God because this giant curtain or veil still separated the most holy place from the other rooms um, in the temple. And so Jews, what they did was they continued to offer sacrifices at the temple and the high priest continued to access the most holy place once a year on behalf of the people. But this way of relating to God was radically changed when Jesus appeared on the scene. As soon as Jesus took his final breath and said, it is finished, and died, something extraordinary happened. This massive curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple was torn from top to bottom. This wasn't a random occurrence, but a supernatural one which signaled a dramatic change from the old way of relating to God to a new way. In this new way of relating to God, the new covenant, a building, animal sacrifices, and a traditional high priest are no longer needed to encounter God. Everyone, everywhere, can have a personal, intimate, permanent relationship with the living God through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Charles Swindle says it this way. He says, No longer did God say to the unclean sinners, Keep out. Now, since the blood of Christ cleansed believers from the stain of sin, we are free to enter the Holy of Holies with confidence. And so as beneficiaries of Jesus' atoning death, we're no longer required to sacrifice animals or go to a temple or rely on a priest to encounter God in Jesus, who's a once-for-all sacrifice, who the tabernacle and the temple are all about, and who's the great high priest in Jesus. We have it all. We sung it earlier, that song where it went, I think the chorus went, Christ is enough. 
right? Christ is enough. In him, we have everything. We have unlimited access to the presence of the living God. Um, R. Kent Huge summarizes this in this way. He says, Jesus is both the curtain, our access, and the priest, our advocate. His torn body and shed blood provides our access to the presence of the Father, and in our access, he's our perpetual um, priestly advocate. Um, last week or throughout the weeks, we've been discussing kind of all of this content like animal sacrifices and tabernacles in our community group. And last week, we were um, um, you know, talking about all of this and one of our members kind of said, man, I'm just so thankful we are not in Old Testament times. And we were all like, why? And he was basically like, I'm just glad we don't have to like sacrifice animals. It was just gory and bloody. I'm glad we don't have to go to a temple or rely on anyone. And, and you know, I was listening to that and I was like, that's like, that's so true, isn't it? Like we don't have to go through all of those rituals in order to encounter God because in Christ, it's all been done for us. And so... Apart from a convenient and less bloody and ritualistic way of relating to God, how else do we benefit from Jesus' sacrifice? We're at the turning point of the book of Hebrews. The author, what he's going to do now is transition from talking about the superiority of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, and he's going to transition from that to how it applies to us. Throughout, he's been kind of giving us hints of how it applies, but now he's going to get really specific. And so, Jesus has died, his sacrifice is enough, and so what? What has that got to do with how we should live? And so the first thing is, because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, we can draw near to God. We can draw near to God. Look at verses 19 to 22. It reads, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, um, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, here it is, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Remember in Old Testament times, only the priest, the high priest, could access the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, once a year. Once a year in order to atone for not just um, the sins of the people, but his sins. Okay? Remember that. And so the Greek word for the English word confidence in verse 9 is parousia. This is a rare word in Greek literature um, that has to do with free and open expression of conduct. And so parousia wants us to picture a child freely and confidently approaching her father no matter who he is. And what makes parousia even more fascinating is that in the ancient Jewish context, 
it relates mostly to approaching God in prayer. And so, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we are being encouraged to draw near to God in prayer with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What does this mean? The Bible uses the word heart in several ways. Sometimes it means the physical organ located in our chest, and other times it's figurative. It's um, used to represent the whole inner person. Um, the heart is sometimes biblical language for the essence of a person, um, for a person's interior life, their mind, body, and soul. And that's what it represents here in verse 22. And so the word true connotes the idea of being real, genuine, and loyal. And so to draw near to God in prayer with a, tr with a true heart in full assurance of faith, let me give it to you, is to talk with, God, talk with the God of the universe honestly with certainty and confidence that you are unconditionally loved and accepted by him. Let me say it another way. To draw near to God in prayer with true heart in full assurance of faith is to be honest, unfiltered, raw, and naked before the God of the universe in prayer with the assurance that we are unconditionally loved and accepted by him. How is this possible? How can we draw near to God in this raw and honest and unfiltered way, trusting that we are loved by him. Um, look at verse 22 again. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so in Old Testament time, after an animal was sacrificed, what they would do is that they would drain, they would take some of the blood, collect it in a bowl, um, and what the priests would do is sprinkle the blood on temple items um, as a symbol of purifying and cleansing it. Likewise, the blood of Christ, figuratively speaking, has been sprinkled on our hearts, and as a result, we've been cleansed from an evil conscience. R. Kent Hughes says this, uh, but with the new covenant, when the people of this um, Hebrew church came to faith, their hearts were inwardly sprinkled with Christ's blood to cleanse them from an evil conscience. We're also um, able to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith because our bodies have been washed with pure water. And what does this mean? Um, Michael Kruger um, helps us here. He says, under the old covenant, if you became ritually unclean for any reason, you would have to wash. All these washes pointed to the real cleansing that Christ would bring. Our author is not saying that you have, lit, you, you know, you have to have a literal bath. He is saying that you are clean in the eyes of God. You've not just been washed with earthly water. You've been washed with pure water, the kind that only Christ can offer. And so spiritually speaking, our hearts have been sprinkled 
and our bodies have been washed clean by the sacrifice of Christ. And as a result, we can draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, we can be honest, unfiltered, raw, and naked before the God of the universe in prayer with the assurance that we are unconditionally loved and accepted by him. Is this how you pray? Do you pray with a true heart? Do you pray with the assurance that because of Jesus' sacrificial death, you are truly and eternally loved by the God of the universe? Or has your prayers become a stage for you to perform for God? Let me explain. Have you been drawing near to God with an insincere and insecure heart? Kyle Strobel helps us here. He says, too often, prayer has become a way to perform for God, hoping that we can say and do things that will tether him to us. Too many Christians refuse to tell God the truth because they think he will only receive them in their goodness, forgetting that it was in their sin that he died for them. And so, Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, draw near to God in prayer with a true heart. Tell God that you're angry with the person that hurt you. Tell God how unsatisfied you are with life and how things are going. Talk to God about your consuming, lustful thoughts when you're in them. Share with God how bitter you are. Tell God that you're angry that your co-worker got the promotion you feel you deserve. Be real and honest with God in prayer. A lot of the times what happens to me is the reason why I don't pray sometimes is because I just feel like I have to clean myself up and fix myself before I can actually draw near to God. But that's not the point. Draw, like drawing near to God with a true heart means coming and drawing near in a real and honest way. And so, how honest have you been on your knees? Um, Carl Strobel again says, he says, when we fail to be honest in prayer, we see the ways we have struggled to accept the truth of the gospel. Prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Prayer becomes real when it accepts the truth of the gospel and prays according to the contours of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. 
Tyler Staten, who recently wrote a really good on prayer, um, says this. He says, when we come in and out of God's presence in gathered communities with our deepest needs and secrets hidden, we are essentially saying, Jesus, victory is not enough. It's not enough for me. Not enough for this. I just need more time. I can sort this out on my own. And so in view of these great truths about Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, there can be no other response other than to draw near to him with assurance and confidence. When we see the majesty and faithfulness of Christ, we can do nothing less than come near to God through him during every season of our life. And so we've seen that because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, we can draw near to God. Next, um, because of his sacrifice, we can hold on to what we believe. Hold on to what we believe. Look at verse 23. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so after encouraging us to draw near to God in prayer with a true heart in full assurance of faith, the author of Hebrews now exhorts us to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. To hold fast literally means to hold down something or get a firm grip on it. It means not bowing or bending. And so what we are being exhorted to do um, is firmly hold on to something. What is that something we're being exhausted, we're being encouraged to hold fast to? It's in the text. It's the confession of our faith. Confession in this passage is not talking about um, the idea of acknowledging our sin before God and sharing our sins with others. In this context, confession of our hope refers to the content of what we believe as Christians. Refers to the content in what we believe as Christians. It's the traditions of our faith. It's sound doctrine. It's biblical theology. And the author of Hebrews wants us to hold fast to what we believe Without wavering. Without wavering can be summed up with this word, stability. It can be illustrated using a lasting friendship or a missile that is locked in on a target or a bull chasing a red flag. Without wavering means this stable, consistent, focused on something. And so to hold fast our confession of hope without wavering is to remain committed to what we believe. Why the need to hold fast the confession of our faith, without, um, of our hope without wavering? Look at verse 23 again. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? We hold on to what we believe because we are being held by a God who is faithful. Our holding on to the truths of who God is, is evidence that he is holding on to us. Putting all of this together, the author of Hebrews wants us to keep a tight grip on our Christian faith. He wants us to adhere firmly to biblical truth, to remain rooted and grounded in our, confession, in our convictions, 
to be confirmed and established in the truth of who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. To hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering is to cling to God's word and live by it. And it's to hold on to the hope that we profess without the slightest hesitation because we're held by a God who is faithful. Our holding on to the truths about God is evidence that he is holding on to us. And I would say for us, the need to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering is more necessary now than ever. Um, Danish de Souza, in his best-selling book, What is So Great About Christianity, states that a small but influential segment of liberal Christianity rejects all the central doctrines of Christianity. Richard Niebuhr, a theologian, famously summed up this their credo in this way. He says, you know, this whole idea of... Um, um, rejecting the central doctrines of Christianity, this author sums it up in this way. He says, it's a God without wrath, brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. Michael Kruger sums up, he says, in our modern day, we are bombarded with every reason to give up on what we believe. People think Christianity is ridiculous or offensive or crazy. People attack core Christian truths on the internet, in books, and we need to be careful to hold on because we are under great temptation to drift away. You will be tempted to loosen your grip on what you believe to be true you will be tempted to begin to tolerate what you didn't before. And so, Christian, we are being encouraged and exhorted to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We are being encouraged to hold fast to the truth that Jesus is the Son of the living God And that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God the Father except through him. And so, Christian, continue to hold fast to your conviction that Jesus' sacrifice is all you need to have a right relationship with God. Remain convinced that the 66 books of the Bible are truly the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. Remain committed to God's design and will for marriage. Remain convinced that generosity um, is what God is calling you to, even if giving hurts. Continue to prioritize gathering with other believers, even in the midst of a crazy, busy season. Remain committed to the spiritual practices of prayer and Bible reading, even if it doesn't feel good or you don't feel like doing it. Christian, remain committed to what you believe. This is the exhortation. This is what it means to hold fast to your confession, to what you believe. When we talk about 
holding on and holding fast and keeping a grip. Uh, what's so fascinating about this, and I've realized that, this, that it cannot happen in isolation. It needs to happen in community. And I love like God's word and I love you know, the author of Hebrews and how he's been inspired by the Spirit. Because he's saying, draw near to God, um, hold fast to what you believe. Um, and then he says, he's going to be saying, this needs to be done in community. Because you cannot do it alone. And that's what we're going to be looking at next. And so because of Jesus' once for all sacrifice, we can what? Draw near to God and hold on to what we believe, right? And lastly, because of Jesus' once for all sacrifice, we can encourage one another. Look at verse 24. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. First, we're being exhorted to what? To stir up one another. The term stir up is often used negatively as an action that irritates someone. But in this context, it communicates positive stimulation or motivation. In other words, Christians are to motivate one another to love expressed in good works. And so the question is, what kind of love and good works are we being encouraged to motivate each other towards? Look at verse 25. It's going to give us the answer. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, um, the day drawing the end. So the love and good works we are being encouraged to pursue is to not neglect meeting together, but instead encourage one another as we meet together. First, we must not neglect meeting together on a regular basis, as, it, as is the habit of some. The word neglect in Greek carries the idea of abandonment or forsaking someone or something. Just think about it. Just the Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, possibly living in Rome, Italy, and it seems that some of them were neglecting gathering together with other believers. Um, we're not sure exactly why some of them were neglecting gatherings. Um, could have been persecution. Could have been all sorts of things. Whatever the reason, the neglect of fellowship, right, is fatal for perseverance in faith. And the neglect of fellowship with other believers means that we're not able to be encouraged and strengthened. What they must do is not neglect meeting together. What they must do is encourage one another all the more as they see the day drawing near. Listen, there is an amazing power when we gather together. The other day I was talking to someone and they were like, man, I love singing in church. And I was like, wow, you must have a good voice. <laughs> and they were like, no, it's not my voice. But I love singing in church because I get to hear the people around me singing. And when they are singing the truths of Scripture, 
I am being reminded and I am being taught. Here we say we sing songs that teach. We are specific when it comes to the song. We want the songs that we sing to be grounded in scripture and sound theology. And so when you are singing, okay, you are teaching someone. You are encouraging someone. There are so many ways we can encourage and strengthen each other. And it cannot, like as a Christian, in terms of the idea of drawing closer to God and holding fast to the faith in this particular um, um, modern world that we live in, you cannot do it alone. There is a need for you to prioritize gathering together with other Christians. And there are gonna, there's going to be so many things out there. So many things within you that will try to tell you otherwise. There is an amazing power when we gather to encourage one another. And so yesterday, on Saturdays, I have my rhythms. I wake up really early. I'm not going to tell you how early. And I go, I study. And I go to the office, and I do about, you know, several hours, and I come back home at nine um, when my family are up and awake, and I have a, you know, I have a Saturday with the family. Um, we do all sorts of things, you know. We go here, we go there. But yesterday, Elena had a plan for Saturday. Um, she said to me, man, your birthday is coming up. You're going to be 40 um, on Wednesday, and I have a plan. We should go to a cool restaurant. And she said that because I like really cool restaurants. I like to check out restaurants. I'm a foodie. I love all of that. And so she was like, there's this new restaurant that got opened, right, in San Diego, and I want to take you there, and I want it to be a surprise. And so I was like, great. So done at nine, got home, hanged out with my son, watched the football, um, hanged out with the family, and we got ready to go. Um, we were meant to get there at six, and as we were getting ready to go, um, someone in our church texted me and said I needed to come to their house immediately um, and sign, a f sign something that has to do with a trip to Hawaii. We're planning and everything like that, and they were helping us with it. And so I just said to, you know, I sent it to Eleanor, and Eleanor was like, yeah, before we go to the restaurant, we have to pass through this house. <laughs> and so I get in the car, you know, we drive there, we get to the house, and funny enough, he says to us, you can park in our driveway. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's not going to be long. And we get there, I park, and I say to Ellen, yeah, go sign the forms. I'll wait in the car with the family. And she's like, no, we all need to go. And I was like, to sign something? <laughs> yeah. So I reluctantly get out of the car. I kind of go... Um, <laughs> I step through the door, and there are a lot of people <laughs> all looking and smiling at me, and in one voice saying, surprise! I was stunned. I knew nothing about this. Um, stunned in a good way. And I, you know, 
it's an amazing experience. It really felt so dreamy when I was there and saying thank you to everyone and everything. And as I was going home throughout the night, I got you know I had time to reflect on it, and I honestly left that experience being greatly encouraged, like in a in a way that. I've not been encouraged. It wasn't the amount of people, but it was really the, 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 the presence of people and the words that were spoken um, through cards and through verbal interactions. It was an amazing experience. I left encouraged, not just for myself, but I left encouraged being reminded that God has been building his church and that most of the people there were part of the church and they had not been neglecting gathering together. And so, follower of Jesus, it's for real. Like, Jesus really died and his death wasn't just this dude dying. But he was the son of God that died so that you can have unlimited access to a God who absolutely loves you. If you are not a Christian, I so want to encourage you and plead with you to consider Jesus We may sound crazy, but it's true. This is is the reality we're living in. So I would encourage you to consider Jesus. He will change your life. And when I say change your life, I'm not talking about like um, make your life, give you like your best life now. (laughs) He will change your life because he Through him, you will be able to not only gain access to the God of the universe, but you'll be able to engage and encounter and engage with him in prayer. It's true. It's absolutely true. And so, church, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you can draw near to God. You can hold on to what you believe. And you can be a vessel in which God encourages others through regular fellowship with other believers. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Um, Thank you for these reminders. Um, May you be glorified. Um, and may you be praised in all of our lives, Lord. And um, as we sing to conclude our time, may the words that we sing encourage us and strengthen us. Um, encourage us to draw near to you and to strengthen us to hold fast to what we believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.